For more information about First Baptist Church, visit our website at fbclawschool.org. You know, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but on the video bumper that we used to begin this series, there's not a whole lot of pictures as we discuss worship of what goes on inside the church. And I think that's the important point that we're trying to make out of this study. And that is worshiping God is so much greater, so much bigger, so much more involved than simply being in church on Sundays and Wednesdays. Worshiping God is something that we do every day, whether we're at school, whether we're at work, whether we're in the grocery store, whether we're behind somebody driving really slow on Main Street. I have to work, work on my worship for that. But it's a part of everything that we do. And if worship doesn't make up everything that we are, then, then we have got to grow into that. Because that's the reality of worshiping the living God. Today we're going to take a look at another aspect of worship. We think of worship as giving, something that we, something that we give back to God, something that we do uh, in honor and recognition and awe of God. But I want us to take a look today at true worship as something we receive. I'm going to go back and ask a couple of questions we've been thinking about for a couple of weeks now as we've started this. What do you think about when you hear the word worship? What do you think about? What is it John Calvin said we looked at? We should consider it the great end of our existence to be found among the numbers of the worshipers of God. Do we consider worship the great end of our existence? When you thought about worship, did you, did you think about it being the great end of your existence? Did you think about everything we do, everything we are, is worship? Is that the way you took a look at it? I think probably this is going to cause all of us to expand our, our understanding of what it really means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Worshiping God is so much more than just an act or a location or an event. It's a way of life. Worship needs to become a way of life for us. John 4.23 says, well, it, John 4.23, it, it encompasses the story of the uh, Samaritan woman at the well and you know that Jesus came to this well and he was basically waiting for this woman to show up and she shows up at the well to get some water and Jesus initiates a conversation with her which was totally out of character for a Jewish male in this culture number one she was Samaritan and a Jew wouldn't be caught talking to a Samaritan second of all she was a woman and a Jewish male would not be would not be uh, compromised by talking to a woman of, with, with, which he was, with whom he was, she, he was not familiar. But Jesus looked at her and said, give me a drink. And then they have this discussion about why this is wildly inappropriate for him to be asking, and then he initiates a conversation with her that, that lets her know that he knows all about her. He knows everything about who she is, and when he confronts her, in, in, in love, in a, in a very conversational way, 
with the life that she's living. He said, go back and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He said, you're exactly right. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. So she immediately starts doing what? Talking about worship. We've got to get the subject off of me. So we're going to talk about worship. And he talks about, they, she says, you know, your people say that you should worship God in Jerusalem. We worship God on, on this mountain. What, what, what's, you know, what do you think about that? You see, she's hung up on geography as worship. But Jesus tells her that where she worships is the least of her concerns. She's not even clear on who or, or why or how she worships. Jesus tells her this in John 4, 23, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. Worship in spirit and truth is worship that comes from, it springs out of a heart that is sincere, a heart that lines up with the truth of God's Word. It's not simply an act or a, a, something that we go through. It's a, it's a matter of, of the heart. God gives us that ability, that desire, that enablement. If that's even a word, I'm not, I don't think English teachers in here to question that. I, I appreciate that. But it takes God to worship God. He tells us to worship Him and then He equips us to do the very thing that he commands that we do. Isn't God awesome that way? That God doesn't just give us commands and tell us to, tells us to do things and then says, well, you know, how you're going to get there is on your own. What you're going to do with it is, is up to you. No, God says, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. And now I'm going to give you what you need to accomplish what I have tasked you with. Man, that is just, to me, that is, that is just, that's just awesome. He enables us by His power to move past our own selfishness and, and worship beyond ourselves. We can't worship God appropriately in, in ourselves. We just can't. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing of God. Jesus told the Samaritan woman not only that the Father was seeking true worshipers, but what did He tell her? That He came to make her one. He reached across racial, ethnic, cultural, gender lines and he said god is not only seeking worshipers he's here to make you a worshiper in many ways we're like that samaritan woman that jesus encountered she didn't know god as well as she thought she did she didn't know god she had a hard time connecting gathered worship with her daily life and do, do we sometimes fall into that do we wonder sometimes, as we leave worship, how we're going to apply that to our daily lives? That's where she was. And I think that's where we spend a, a good bit of time. She struggled with where and how God could be worshipped, and she questioned who she was supposed to worship with. The words that Jesus spoke to her speak very strongly to us as well. He helps us see that worship begins with God's extravagant grace, not our efforts. 
We worship God because of the grace of God, not because of something that, that we do. He shows us that He is the true center of worship. However much we may be sidetracked with the trappings of it, what it's supposed to look like or supposed to sound like, all of those things kind of take us away from the focus, the centrality that our worship should have in Jesus Christ. Everything we do here should be centered in Jesus Christ. Everything we do out there should be focused, should be centered in Jesus Christ. That is the beginning, the foundation of our act of worship. However many distractions that we have, however many, how often the enemy uh, places distractions in our path that would keep us from worshiping as we should, we are called to remain focused. We're called to keep our eye on the ball. What is it that we're trying to do? What is it that our life should encompass? A daily, moment-by-moment worship of the living God for what He has done for us, what He continues to do, the blessings that He continues to give, the lessons that He continues to teach. The Samaritan woman thought that she understood worship. But her understanding was radically altered by her encounter with Jesus. How do we know that? Because she went back to people that wouldn't even give her the time of day. And she started sharing with these people about this encounter that she had with Jesus. How he knew things about her and he, he told her things that changed her life. Is that our, that our encounter with, with Jesus as well? Does he tell us things about ourselves? Does he remind us about things that we may not want to remember about ourselves? Does he tell us that he came to offer us a living water? And if we drank that living water, we would never be thirsty again, spiritually thirsty. That we're bone dry inside spiritually, but if we would drink the living water, we would never be thirsty again. Has he told you that? Let me ask you this question. How would we respond if Jesus wanted to radically alter our understanding of worship? Now listen, I've been a Baptist my whole life. Okay? I know how we deal with radical change. We do not. Okay? But let me ask you this. If God spoke to you in that still small voice, in that burning bush, in that sense of peace and calm, however God communicates with you, if He came to you and He said, I want to radically change the way you worship, would we be ready to get on board with that? Let me tell you something. Before I surrendered to preach, I once quit the choir because Elgin told me that if I didn't clap like everybody else, I was going to have to get out of the choir. It's not one of the best part. It's not one of the parts of my life that I'm the most proud of. But I made the choice. I was either going to stay in the choir and clap or get out, and I got out. But I'm not talking about just what you do during worship. God wants to radically change our understanding. Of worship what does it mean to do that to turn it upside down or better yet 
Or better yet, turn our worship right side up. Is it possible that rather, that rather than looking for something from us, God has something to give us in worship? Could that just be possible? Could it be that worship doesn't even begin with us? Worship is not about us. Could, could it possibly be that? Look, if you will, at 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? That one passage ought to fly in the face of our independence. What does Paul ask this church? What do you have that you didn't receive from somebody else? And that somebody is Jesus Christ. Every blessing that you have, every accomplishment that you have, every comfort that you have, every moment of your spiritual growth, your very salvation, did not come from us. It comes from Christ. And I think when we look at life that way, when we ask ourselves, what do we have? What do we have that we did not receive? And if we did receive it, then why do we brag as if we haven't? A lot of us have a problem receiving, right? Somebody does something for you, in a, in a, in, whether, it's out of a, whether it's out of just a momentary act of kindness or whether it's out of a need that you have that somebody feels, whether it's just a, an act of generosity, a lot of us get, develop a, a kind of an, a, an uncomfortable feeling about that, and we feel like we need to immediately go do something for that person. We have to return that in some way because that makes us feel better about receiving it. A lot of us have issues with, with receiving. But receiving is one of the first things we do as Christians. In fact, an argument could be made that our first responsibility, based on Paul's word to the Corinthian church, is not to give to God, but to receive from Him. To take that and to move it into what we're discussing this morning, I think we can say that when it comes to being a true worshiper, receiving from God is our first calling from first to last. That is our calling, to receive from God. God offers lavishly. He gives abundantly. And what do we do as His children? We soak that in. We receive that with a grateful heart with a soul that is pierced for what, what God accomplished for us through Jesus on the cross. One of the first things what Jesus did before he left was he gave, right? He gave, he sent the Holy Spirit as a gift to us. There are a couple of aspects I want us to look at with regard to our receiving. First, we need to be invited and enabled. We need to be invited and enabled. We are powerless to come to God in our own strength. We're powerless to recognize the sin in our life in our own strength. 
That is that one of the ministries, that's one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit, is to, is to bring to our light, to bring to light in our hearts the fact that we're sinners. The fact that we cannot do these things on our own. The realization is we don't come to that realization on our own. The Holy Spirit prevails on us to understand that. Now, what we do with that belongs to us. We can resist it. We can fight against it. We cannot accept it. But the fact of the matter is, God brings to, 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 our, to our consciousness, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the things that we do. It's called conviction. It's called conviction. Second, God has to show us what he is really like. Look at, uh, if you will, Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus said, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. What's the translation there? We can't figure God out on our own. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The way he operates is not the way we operate. We cannot figure God out on our own. God enables us to understand more and more of him as we grow in discipleship, as we study more, as we pray more, as we spend more time with God. God reveals more of himself to us. We learn more about who he is and what he's done for us and what he can do for a lost and dying world. We, we do that through our study as God reveals himself, just like the Samaritan woman. God reveals himself to us so that we can respond to him rightly. Receiving something from someone with the proper spirit is really a choice between being polite or being rude. But receiving the gift of worship is a matter of life or death. God makes that clear through Scripture from the very beginning. The Bible opens with the words, In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, Adam, or in the beginning, animals, or in the beginning, a gaseous cloud. In the beginning, God. Before anything came to be, God was. Completely happy, completely content, Dwelling, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 16, in unapproachable light, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit unceasingly delighting in each other's perfections in eternity past. Out of his desire to display his glory and have us to share in that glory, God acted. God took the initiative. God created. He created a universe, a galaxy, our solar system, a planet called Earth, a place called Eden. God designed all of that. He created all of that. Eden was ideal. It was perfection on Earth. Paradise. But it wasn't, it wasn't what or even where Eden was that made it so special. It was the presence, capital P. It was the presence. The first couple lived in a world that was ablaze with God's presence, with his glory, 
They walked with Him. Adam and Eve instinctively knew why they had been made. They breathed, ate, slept, played, and labored to exalt the goodness and the greatness of God. It was their purpose. D.A. Carson, pastor and teacher and theologian, wrote tremendously about prayer, who wrote about who we are as creations in Christ wrote this, God's image bearers delighted in the perfection of his creation and the pleasure of his presence precisely because they were perfectly oriented toward him. No redemptive provisions had yet to be disclosed for none were needed. There was no need to exhort human beings to worship. Their entire existence revolved around the God who had made them. That is our goal as Christians, to get back to that ideal that our entire existence revolves around the God who created us. Our first parents were born worshiping. But when they ate of the forbidden fruit, their worship was redirected. Duped by a serpent, they rejected the gift of worshiping God and chose instead to worship themselves. And that first act of disobedience caused all creation to be plunged into sin and futility and despair. That was the moment. That was the moment. Ashamed, confused, afraid. For the very first time, Adam and Eve tried to hide their nakedness and rebellion from God. But what does the Bible tell us? God came seeking. God was walking in the garden in the cool of the evening and came to find Adam and Eve. Now, did God lose Adam and Eve? No. He called out to them to remind them that something had changed. But rather than put them to death, which he had every right to do, God covered Adam and Eve with animal skins. He sought us out and provided for us when all we wanted to do was run from him. We needed him, whether we wanted to admit it or not, and he was there. Let me tell you something. That's the story of our relationship with God. We need him whether we want to admit it or not. And he's always there. He's always present. Throughout Scripture, our need for God to enable our worship was, is evident at every, at every turn. Cain and Abel both brought an offering to the Lord, but only Abel's was accepted. As we learn later in the story, it's because Abel comes in faith. He doesn't trust in his own efforts, but in God. We find that out in Hebrews, Hebrews 11.4. Cain is, is inconsolable because his offering was rejected, and the first recorded worship service results in one worshiper killing the other. God continues to invite and to pursue. He rescues Noah and his family through the flood, and, and hope is momentarily restored. 
But before long, the Tower of Babel proves again that our worship compass is on the fritz. Years later, God calls Abraham out of pagan Ur and promises that his descendants will outnumber the stars. Abraham is stunned. And as God enables barren Sarah to conceive a son, our inability and God's grace is on full display, isn't it? After Israel spends 400 years in Egypt, much of it as slaves, Moses attempts to deliver them, he fails, and then escapes to the desert to tend sheep for 40 years. There, in the middle of nowhere, in a burning bush, God reveals himself to Moses as the self-sufficient I am. In Exodus 6-7, God says, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. See, God's initiative is evident throughout that passage. I will take you. I will be. I am the Lord who brought you out. It's not about us. It's about I, God, when God speaks. Once he's delivered the people of Israel, God meets with his people on Mount Sinai. He provides laws to obey and sacrifices to offer when they disobey. Both are gracious gifts. Both of those things enable the people to draw near to a holy God without being consumed. He tells us what the standard is. He tells us how to believe, what to do. And when we fall short, what we can do about that. In the centuries to follow, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to reveal his character and to reveal his commands to the Israelites. And despite every one of those countless acts of initiative on God's part, Israel continues to lust after idols rather than finding their refuge in their, as Isaiah 54, 5 says, their husband and maker. Clearly, clearly, if God is to have a people who will worship him with all their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength, he will have to bring it about himself. In our sin, we simply find ourselves unable to do that on a consistent basis in ourselves. So God makes a way. He makes a way. After 400 years, he does just that. Jesus is born. Bob Coughlin wrote, In an act of unfathomable love, deity becomes dust, the maker becomes the maligned, the creator becomes the cursed. God comes in Christ to restore the relationship we rejected in the garden. We learn that the greatest gift God gives us is himself. Jesus is God's ultimate statement that he will provide a way for us to worship him, not only in this life, but for all eternity. While our offerings are tainted with self-reliance and self-glorification, Jesus empties himself to bring glory to his Father on our behalf. Jesus is perfect, his perfect life, his death in our place, 
on the cross, His physical resurrection, His glorious ascension, assure us once and for all that those who trust in Him can be numbered among the worshipers of God. For thousands of years, since Jesus' sacrifice, God has been seeking all of those willing to receive the gift of worshiping Him. In His sovereign mercy, I turned out to be one of them. In His mercy and grace, if you're a believer, so did you. And in the words of that old hymn, if you have not received Him, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. If you've never believed until this very day, there's room for you. Don't wait a moment. God has got a gift waiting for you. The gift is eternal life. The gift is joy unspeakable. It is peace that, that, that surpasses anything we could possibly try to get on our own. The world will promise us peace, but what it promises us won't last. God's peace lasts. It lasts beyond the circumstances of our life. It enables us to rejoice in suffering. I know that doesn't sound right. But it enables us to rejoice in suffering because we're not focused on the thing we're suffering about. We're focusing on the God of our creation. And so regardless of what goes on around us, regardless of what's going on in the world around us, in our circumstances in life, the things that we're, that we're going through, there is one steady constant, and that is the love of God. That's why we can rejoice. That is where the peace comes from. That is where the healing comes from. If you're here today and you're hurting because life is not like it ought to be, let me tell you something. You're sitting around people. And every one of us knows that life is not like it ought to be. Because this is not our home. We are given a blessed, beautiful hope in an eternity with the God who made us and who breathed life into us and who, who created us in His image so that, so that unlike any other part of His created order, He can have a relationship with us. And He wants desperately to have a relationship with you. He is calling to you today. He is waiting for you to answer. Maybe you're struggling with that. Well, struggles are part of what we do, right? But God says, if you will just turn it over to me, if you will just believe and confess your sins, 
believe that Jesus came to this earth to die for you and did? That he has got a life for you that is better than this? That there is something beyond this? He's ready to start you on that path. He wants to give you the act of worship. He wants to make it possible for you to worship. Let him do that for you today. Father, we just thank you for your generosity and your kindness and your love and your mercy and all those parts of who you are that that speak to us on a daily basis. God, as we get into your word and as we study and as we pray and as we spend time with you, God, you you tell us more about who you are and and how you've saved us and, and how you've created us and what you would have for us to do. Lord, we gather as your people to worship your name, to bring glory and honor to who you are. Our lives are a testament to you. Lord, help us to take the take the the attention off of ourselves and to give it to you, to point others to you. God, in our lives, be glorified. Father, there's somebody here who needs to make that make that profession to claim that. Let today be the day. God, we thank you so much for loving us and pursuing us and and wooing us and and calling us, God. And and when when we reach out, you are never not there. We thank you for that. Help us to be there for each other in just a small way that you are there for us. In Jesus' name.